This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here for our Cornerstone U class. This one is entitled Words of Life. What is the Bible and how should we read it? Which may sound like a, uh, a basic thing. I'm convinced, though, that a deeper understanding of what Scripture is and why God gave it to us will help us to read Scripture better, more richly. And I'm also convinced that uh, we may not always understand exactly what Scripture is as well as we could. Uh, There's always more to learn. I think Scripture is an inexhaustible fountain. There's much to learn. And sometimes we, uh, we may not think about it or engage with the Bible in a way that is uh, fully rooted in, in what God has taught us about his word and about scripture. And so I think this, uh, this question that we're going to be asking, what is the Bible, how should we read it, is so important for us, whether we're brand new Christians or whether we've been Christians for a long, long time. I have been uh, studying scripture pretty intently for 25 years, uh, I would say, and I can honestly say that uh, I'm still learning new wonders about what scripture is and what it's for uh, every day. Every day I'm more and more conscious of new uh, avenues and crevices and wonders and treasures in scripture, things that I've never seen in 25 years, uh, ways of engaging with scripture that I have not seen in 25 years. Uh, In some ways I feel like a a kid again in some ways every day uh, as I discover new things that I haven't uh, seen before. I I am aware of that every day. And so while this may seem like a basic question, uh, it's a question that we can never really uh, fully exhaust and one that is so helpful for us to think through. So the question is, why has God given us a book as his word? Why has he done this? Is discipleship supposed to be being a bookworm? Is that why God did this for us? Uh, It does raise some questions. Why is it the case that in order to worship God faithfully, we need to pay close attention to the Bible, close attention to a book? Why is it the case that in order to be a faithful disciple of the word made flesh, I need to base my life on the words of scripture? Why is it the case that in order to walk in step with the spirit, I need to trust and obey what scripture says? So these are some questions that we want to ask, and before we jump into seeking how to answer these questions, let me ask the Lord for help here. Father, we want to grow in knowing you more. We want to do whatever it takes to know you and to trust you and to love you and obey you more, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us through these few weeks as we study this issue of what scripture is and how we should read it, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us more than anything else to know you, help us to know you. 
and how it is you desire for us to know you and the ways that we should and should not think about scripture that you have given us. Lord, we need your help. We place ourselves under your care and your guidance now. We want to humble ourselves under you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the first thing I want to do as we think about Scripture is to take a moment to wonder at this idea, this thought that God has spoken to us, spoken to the world. We should not take this for granted. Throughout the centuries, people have not taken this for granted. In fact, uh, a number of years ago, I was reading uh, a book by Plato called The Phaedo, and in this book, uh, Socrates is having a conversation with some of his friends, and there's one particular conversation that struck me, a conversation with a man named Simeus. Now, on your outline here, it says Simicus. That's not correct. It's Simeus. And they are having this conversation about the immortality of the soul, questions about whether the soul is eternal and what happens in the afterlife and things like this. And Simeus says to Socrates that in in so many words, he believes that you really can't have any certainty about how to answer questions like this. Let me read you what Simeon says. He says, it is either impossible or very difficult to acquire clear knowledge about matters, these matters in this life. And yet, a person is a weakling who does not test in every way what is said about them and persevere until he is worn out by studying them on every side. So you see what Simeon is saying. It's, it's impossible really to answer questions like this in this life. But all we can do is wear ourselves out in studying and trying to figure out how to answer questions like this. And then he says... If it's impossible to answer these questions, a person must take whatever human doctrine is best and hardest to disprove and embarking upon it as upon a raft, sail upon it through life in the midst of dangers. Unless, well, let's stop here and just recognize again what he's saying. It's impossible to answer questions like this in this life. All we can do is wear ourselves out trying to figure it out, studying it as hard as we can. In fact, you're a weakling if you don't do that. So what you have to do then is find the best human theory you can find about questions of the afterlife and so forth, and let that be the raft that you sail through this life of dangers on. You're adrift at sea, basically. This is the best you can do. And then he says something striking after this thought about sailing through the the dangerous waters. He says, unless a man can sail upon some stronger vessel. What is the stronger vessel? He says, some divine revelation, some word from God, and make his voyage more safely and securely. So you got two options. You're in the dark. You can just exert lots of effort to try to figure out what's true about these kinds of questions. 
study as hard as you can, figure out the best human theory and just be adrift at sea and that's just the best you can do. Or you can have a stronger vessel. You can have a divine revelation. You can have a sure word from God and make your journey, your voyage more safe and secure. Now, it seems that Simeus does not think that that last possibility is true. And I'm telling you, many throughout history have not believed that that last possibility is true. The best we can do is use our human reason to figure out what's true about God. And otherwise, we're just in the dark. Well, the wonder of what Scripture teaches us is that what Simeon says is not actually true. We are not in the dark. We are not adrift at sea. We do have a, a safe and secure vessel. We do have a divine revelation, a sure word from God. We don't have to weary ourselves in order to try to find something that's not possible for us to find. It'd be like uh, me saying to you, listen, in order to answer these questions about uh, divine things, spiritual things, the afterlife, I want you to stand up where you are and jump to the moon. All right, let's all give this a try right now. This, this would be what Simeus is saying is reality, and he's right. Simeus is not wrong about this. If all we are left with is our own capacities, our own human reason, our own abilities, our own strivings, our own studies, then it would be like trying to jump to the moon. Not possible. The wonder of what Scripture teaches is that that's not the case. What Scripture teaches is that God has spoken. God has made himself known. God has revealed himself. God has taught us what to think about himself and about these questions that Simeon is looking for. And if you would look with me at Hebrews chapter 1, I want to show you how the writer of Hebrews thinks about this. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. And notice the author of Hebrews is speaking into a world here of philosophers and thinkers who are, who are saying, hey, we don't have a sure word from God. Let's just use our minds and our philosophies to try to figure this stuff out. And the author of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. And we ought not to pass over that too quickly. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in the old times, Many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But notice verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the author of Hebrews divides history into two phases, really. He divides history into the time when God spoke to our fathers through the prophets 
and a time when God has spoken to us through his son. And this last phase is better because now we're not leaning on uh, God's revelation through prophets, but we're seeing revelation, we're seeing God speak through his son, and his son is the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of God's own glory, the clearest revelation of himself. But the point, simple point I'm making here is that we're not climbing to the moon here. We're not left in the dark to figure out what's true about the God of this universe. We're not trying to climb out of Plato's cave in order to get to the sunlight. No, no, the sun is coming down into the cave to reveal himself to us and make himself known to us. Long before we even begin to strive to figure out what's true about God, God rises from his throne and takes on human flesh and reveals himself to us. God speaks to us, God makes himself known to us, and he does that first, and that's grace to us. We don't want to take that for granted. Now, let's talk about what happens when God speaks, okay? According to the author of Hebrews, God has spoken through his prophets long ago at many times in many ways, and God has spoken to us by his son. Let's talk about what is meant by speaking. Now, one of the things we learn from Scripture is that when God speaks in Scripture, God at the same time acts. Now, what I mean by this is not that God speaks and then he acts. What I mean by this is that Scripture makes very plain that God acts by speaking. God acts by speaking. Think about Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice what's going on here. It's not that God says, let there be light, and then he goes about acting to make light. That's not what's going on. What God, what's going on is God speaks, and when he speaks, things happen. It, he acts by speaking. It says over and over again in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said, and each time God spoke, things happened. So the God who is presented to us in the Bible is not a wordless actor, as Timothy Ward says it. He is a God who by his very nature acts by speaking. For God to say words is to perform the action at the same time. As you go on through the story of Scripture, you notice that God carries out his acts of redemption by speaking as well, doesn't he? He, he makes promises to human beings. He calls them to himself by speaking. So after sin comes into the world through Adam and Eve, we see God call Abram out of Ur and speak a word of promise to Abram. He enters into covenant with Abraham by a word of promise. And when he does this, he ties himself, he ties his future actions to the words of his promise. He, he, 
in Genesis 12, when he begins the story of redemption, he calls Abraham and he makes some promises. I'm gonna give you a land. I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna make your descendants great. And in you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And every time God enters into relationship with human beings, covenant relationship, he does it by speaking words of promise to them. God acts to form these relationships, these covenant relationships with human beings in speaking words of promise. Words are always at the heart of God's actions in Scripture. Let me point out a couple of texts later on that highlight this fact. Psalm 29, Psalm 29, verse 5 It says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Verse eight, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. So here again, you see it's the voice of the Lord that carries out, if you were to go through the Old Testament and look at this closely, you see it's it's the word of the Lord that carries out salvation and judgment. God speaks and thereby acts through his speaking. One text that may be familiar to many of us is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So notice here, God makes plain that when God sends out his word, his word accomplishes things. Again, it's not just that God speaks and then after he speaks, he acts. No, it's in speaking and sending his word that his word accomplishes things. Now you know, we're as human beings created in the image of God, we speak, don't we? This is one of the ways that we reflect God's nature. We are speaking communicative beings. And uh, you know, there's some sense in which we reflect God's character in this way. Our speech does accomplish things in some ways. Uh, when, When we want things to happen, we will often speak words. Uh, you know, parents know that, that in this way our words can be like God at sometimes and not in others. Uh, our words sometimes uh, motivate our children to action. Sometimes they do refer to, return to us void, which is, which is a constant reminder that we, we are like God in some ways and not like others. But it's true, isn't it, though? I mean, one of the reasons why preaching is so uh, effective is because our words, um, they paint pictures, they do things, they, they accomplish things in our minds and hearts. And so in some ways, our speaking is like God. In some ways, it is not. God's word never returns to him void. When he speaks, things always happen. God's word always accomplishes what it has been sent to do. Now, if you look at the New Testament, you see that Jesus, this is one of the ways I think Jesus testifies to us that he is 
revealing God to us, that he himself is God, perhaps. Notice when Jesus does things throughout the course of his ministry, he does them by speaking, doesn't he? When Jesus steps up to the tomb of Lazarus, for example, he does not do this, right? What does he do? He says, Lazarus, come forth. He speaks words, and the words that Jesus speaks accomplish the task that he sent them for. He doesn't speak and then act. No, it's in the speaking that Lazarus comes from death to life. Or what does Jesus do when uh, there is a demon or an unclean spirit in someone? He says, come out, and the unclean spirit comes out. Or what does Jesus do when he's asleep in the boat? And the disciples are terrified because of the wind and waves and they come to him and they wake him and he steps up onto the front of the boat. What happens here? No, he doesn't snap his fingers or wave a magic wand. He says, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey him. Or one of the stories I love about this is the the paralytic. The four men, they carry the paralytic to Jesus. I love this story because, you know, they're expecting Jesus to heal this man. They're expecting him to uh, cause this man to get up and take his mat and go home. And he does do that eventually, doesn't he? But you know what the first thing Jesus says to him was? He says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, what I think we're supposed to learn from this is that Jesus, when he speaks, things happen. And Jesus has the authority not simply to say to the wind and the waves, be still, and, and, and to say to Lazarus' dead body, uh, come forth from the grave, but he has the power to speak with his words, your sins are forgiven. And when he speaks this word, it's accomplished. And then people grumble and say, well, only God has authority to forgive sins. Yes, your point is? And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go home. So his word accomplishes the healing of the man's broken body. But he only speaks the word to heal the man's body in order to demonstrate that he has the power to speak by his word in such a way to forgive our sins. Again, the point is, God acts by speaking. His word is action. His word accomplishes things. One other example of this from the New Testament, and I hope you can see I'm just giving a smattering of things. Uh, You could trace this from start to finish, from cover to cover. God's word is God's action. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul compares our conversion to the creation story. I just mentioned a moment ago that in the creation story, God speaks and things happen. God says, let there be light and there's light. God says, let there be an expanse and there's an expanse and so forth. Paul says that our conversion to Jesus Christ is an example of that. It's an example of God's creation work in our hearts. So notice verse six, uh, 2 Corinthians four, verse six, 
He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now you notice what he's talking about there, Genesis 1. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So notice what Paul is saying. As Paul goes about proclaiming the word of the gospel, the word of the God, the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as he preaches this word, the spirit of God accompanies this word of God in the gospel and gives light to our dark hearts. Just like the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and accompanied the Word of God to make light where there was darkness. That's what happens in our hearts when the Word of God is spoken to us. The Word of God then is living and active. When God speaks, God acts. His Word accomplishes things. It does not return to Him void. Now this is important in our thinking about scriptures. I hope you can see where we're going with this and why it's so important. But before I uh, summarize uh, in relationship to scripture why this is so important, let's go ahead to the next point here on your outline. I wanna discuss this one first before we bring this together. So we know that God acts by speaking. We also know from Scripture that God conveys His presence through words. God conveys His presence through words. And this, this is such that human, the human response to God's words is a response to God Himself. If God conveys his presence through words, then what we do with God's words is what we do with God, you see. How we respond to his words is how we respond to him. I think parents can also uh, get a taste of this as well, right? When we speak words to our children, if, if they don't do what we ask, then oftentimes we feel as though it's a personal uh, disregard, right? And that's because our words are not something separate from us. Our words are connected to us. In some ways they convey who we are. And to reject our words is to reject us. And this is true with God. Think about Adam and Eve. When, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's words, notice the way that God engaged in covenant relationship with Adam and Eve was through words, speaking words, words of command and words of grace and other things. When Adam and Eve twisted God's words and disobeyed God's words, They weren't just pushing aside his words, but they were fracturing the relationship with God himself. This covenant relationship of love that existed between God and his people was fractured based upon how they responded to his words. Uh, This is the way Timothy Ward puts this. Uh, Timothy Ward has a book called Words of Life where I get the title of this course. Um, 
And he says it this way. When Adam and Eve disobey God's spoken command, they fracture their relationship with God himself. From God's side, when the words of his command are set aside by his creatures in favor of their own desires and their own claims of wisdom, then God himself has been set aside. God has invested himself in his words. God has so identified himself with his words that whatever someone does to God's words, whether it's to obey or disobey, they do directly to God himself. Now think about, let's think about this idea of covenant for just a moment. If you were here for my class on tracing the storyline of scripture last year, you may have remember much of what I said there about covenant and how God relates to human beings by means of covenant. Scripture uh, moves through covenant and covenant is a relationship of God with his people always and God always initiates a covenant relationship of love with his people by speaking you may remember I said in Genesis 12 when God is first beginning a covenant with Abraham he 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 speaks to Abraham he makes promises to Abraham he calls Abraham to a certain mission, a certain task. And Abraham obeys God's command and he trusts God to keep his promise. And it's in doing so that Abraham enters into a covenant relationship with God. His response to God's word is a response to God. It's an obedience to God's word and it is a trust in God's word. Now the point I'm making here is that God always relates to us in a covenant relationship of love through these words of command and promise. And it's what we do in response to God's word of command and promise, whether we obey, whether we trust, uh, that we, it's what we do with that that colors how we relate to God in this covenant of love. If you think about God's covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, we see there God relates to his people by words of command and promise as well, don't we? And as God continues to be present with the people uh, in the tabernacle and temple, you know in the holy place where God's presence was, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and in that Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of stone on which were written God's command and his word of grace that he has given to the people. And so this is always a reminder to the people of Israel that God relates to them in this covenant relationship through his word. It's, it's what they do with his word of command and promise that uh, testifies to their response to God himself. So God's word, and you, you can see this in, the, in that Ark of the Covenant, God's word then in some ways conveys his presence to the people. Now I'll say here that, that these words that God speaks to his people is not like a representative of God so that God himself is absent while his word in some way represents him. No, what we see in scripture is that God comes to be present through words. And he doesn't come to be present with us without using words. Notice that. That's an important uh, 
thing to say there. God comes to be present with us through words, and he doesn't come to be present with us without using words. There is no covenant relationship in Scripture that God does not use words to relate himself. And that, again, is is words of command. It's also words of promise. I will be God for you. I will be with you always. I will keep the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God binds himself to his words, doesn't he, in this way. And so we as human beings, as we relate to God, we trust his words and we obey his words. And in so doing, we experience the covenant love of God. You remember Jesus says in John 15, other places, if you, uh, if you abide in my words, you abide in my love. If you love me, you will keep my commands. It's what we do with the words of Jesus that enables us to experience his presence. Not as a way of earning, but as this proper covenant relationship of trusting and obeying. So the words are necessary in order to bring about communion with God. They are a necessary medium for this. Now some people have wondered over the centuries, how can we say that something like human words can communicate divine words? If what we're speaking here and what we're reading in Scripture are human words, how can something so human be said to be God's words? And a couple of things I would say about that is, number one, Scripture says this very often, that, the, that these words that are spoken in Scripture and in the prophets are God's words. For example, let me just give you a couple. Well, let me just mention for the sake of time one place here where this happens in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18. Here, God is promising that there's going to be another prophet like Moses. And uh, listen to this, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and hear this part, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So notice what God is saying. When when I raise up this prophet, I'm gonna put my words in his mouth and what he speaks to you will be my words. And if you don't listen to the words that this prophet speaks, then that's the same thing as not listening to my words, God says. And there are other passages like this in the scripture. So The Bible assumes that it's possible for the human words that are spoken by the prophets to be the very words of God. There's no problem here with this. 
And another thing I might say about this is to think that we ought not to assume that just because something is human, that therefore it cannot be something that God is doing. And the incarnation, of course, is a revealer of this, right? So many people had problems with this in the early centuries. You mean to tell me that God has become flesh? God has taken on human flesh? No way. That's not possible. But what God has created to be good, namely our human flesh, is certainly something that obviously he can inhabit without uh, contradicting who he is as God. So it's not a problem to say that human words can carry divine words, that, that the words that we communicate with each other as human beings can be the words of God. God is the one who has given us these words, then they can be the words of God. So, let's take, let's take a moment here just to summarize what we've said so far and think about this in, in relationship to Scripture. What we've said so far is that Scripture teaches us that God acts by speaking. God's words are actions. We've also seen from Scripture that God communicates himself and his presence through words. And these two things have huge implications about how we think about Scripture. Because if Scripture is the Word of God, if Scripture truly is the Word of God, then we don't come to Scripture simply to learn things about God. Scripture is not given to us so that we might say, okay, I've got a lot of ideas I need to learn about God. Teach me about God. Let's read and learn. No, this revolutionizes the way we engage with the Bible because when we read Scripture as God's words, what we need to realize is that God is not just teaching us things about himself, but God is acting upon us when we read. God acts by speaking. What happened to Lazarus happens to us. What happened to the wind and the waves happens to us. When the gospel comes to us, it says let there be light and the Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God to make us a new creation. This ought to revolutionize our reading of Scripture, right? Because I don't just open the book to learn things. I open the book before a God whose word does not return void. When I read scripture, things happen because the word of God acts upon me. And I should come expecting that. This scripture as the word of God is an act of love from God to change me, to shape me, to mold me, to make me like Jesus Christ. And if I come away from this book only gathering up facts to add to my repertoire of knowledge, then I'm missing what God is doing to make a new life in me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Or as Peter puts it, um, we are born again through the living word of God. That's what Peter says. So the word of God makes us alive. It acts the love of God upon us. Now, the second thing we've noticed ought to also transform the way we come to the Bible. Because I come to the Bible not simply to be acted upon by God, but notice what we said next. 
God communicates his presence through his word as well. Again, when I come to the scriptures to read, I'm not simply coming to learn things about a distant God. God is out there somewhere, and this book tells me things about him. That's not the case if Scripture is the Word of God. And we need to establish that more. But if Scripture is the Word of God, then when I read this, then I am communing with God himself. God is coming to be present with me through his words. This is revolutionary, isn't it? And I hope that you'll never read Scripture again in any other way than to say, when I read, God, change me. God, save me. God, make me alive. God, renew my heart. God, make me like Jesus. Act upon me through your words. God, I want to be near you. Be near to me. Commune with me. Be present with me. This is what's happening when we come to Scripture. It's a covenant word, you see. Scripture is, as the words of God. God is communing with us and loving us. And so as we, you notice uh, what we were saying about what Abraham was supposed to do and what Adam and Eve were supposed to do and what the people of Israel were supposed to do with God's words. They were supposed to trust and obey, not just learn things or get their questions answered. Scripture is not about simply answering questions. It's not meant to be a book like that. The Bible is not a tame book. Aslan is not a tame lion. It does things to me. God does things to me. I'm I'm meant to come to Scripture and something is supposed to happen. Obey, trust. These are life transformers, not simply question answerers is what I'm trying to say here. Let me read this summary uh, from Timothy Ward because I think he summarizes what we've said so far very well he says when we encounter certain human words for example the words of a prophet that God has given his words to like we saw there in Deuteronomy 18 when we encounter certain human words like that we are in direct contact with God's words this is itself a direct encounter with God's activity since God's speech is one form in which he regularly acts, especially with his covenant-making activity, his relationship of love activity. And an encounter with God's covenant-making communicative activity is itself an encounter with God himself. Wow. That's, that's earth-shattering, isn't it? Life-changing. It should be. Now let me say a couple of quick things here uh, in closing because um, uh, I haven't gotten through all the outline that I gave you and that's what I expected. I wanted to establish those two things well first. What I want to do next is to show how Jesus Christ then comes to be 
the ultimate revelation of God and to give us the word of God so that we can ask ourselves, um, how do we relate to Jesus Christ as the word of God? Remember what we read from Hebrews 1, long ago, God spoke through his prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So I want to give attention to how he has spoken to us by his son and then ask the question, how does scripture itself get involved in this? Hebrews 1 doesn't say he spoke by the prophets, then he spoke by his son, and now he speaks by scripture, okay? So how do we answer that question? In these last days, God has spoken by his son, ultimately, and how does scripture relate to that? So you know what? Let's... um, Let me just let that be a foretaste of what's coming at the beginning of next week because I want to take some careful time in doing this. Uh, So let me see if you have, uh, we got time for two or three questions here if you have any. So anybody have thoughts or questions? Curtis. Well, that's a good question, Curtis. And I I mean, I think just being aware of it uh, itself would be something, but I... That's such a good thought, and I, I, this is what we want. When we gather together as God's people, we are, we're not gathering together as God's people uh, inviting God to be near to us. In fact, it's just the reverse. God is calling us by his word to himself. This is why we, we begin every service with a scriptural call to worship. Okay, so just understand this, what happens in our worship services. This is so helpful for everyone to know. We begin with a word from God. Because what we're trying to say is that God is calling us to himself right now through his word. We're not standing up here as human beings with any kind of special power to assemble the people and make you different and new. What we're doing is being called here by an initiating gracious God We're not doing like Simeon said and searching and searching. No, we're placing ourselves under a gracious God who initiated it and called us by his word. So at the first stroke of our service, we hear from the word of God. And what we should be doing as God's people is saying, that word is a gracious word from God to me now, calling me to himself by his grace and changing me right now, regardless of where I've come from. And what we also want to do is when we, we normally have a scripture reading in the midst of our singing, and we hope that that would be the case there as well, is that the people in the congregation would not hear that scripture as just, oh, let's, let's hear these words and learn something. No, what we like to see instead is we think God once again is acting by his grace upon me through his word, and God is coming to be present with us now through his word. And then again, in the preaching of the word, as Curtis just said, that act of preaching the word, what we're seeking to do as preachers of the word is to uh, let the word of God come to bear here, not to bring our own ideas, not to come up with our own ideas and then tie some scripture passage to them, but to teach and explain the word. And God, and God suggests that he gives teachers and pastors as, a, as conveyors of his word, as teachers of his word. And God, you know, you notice what we read there in 2 Corinthians 4 is Paul says, when I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the word of God. He's not always perhaps 
you know, reading a verse of Scripture, but he's still preaching the Word of God in the Gospel, and God is using that Gospel and that Word of God insofar as it's faithful to the Gospel of Jesus Christ to change people. So as a preacher stands up and he's teaching the words of God, insofar as he's faithfully teaching the words of God, then yet again, we're not simply learning things from a book intellectually. If this is the Word of God, then he is acting by his grace to draw us to himself in love, to bring us into his Trinitarian life, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to, to make promises to us that give us hope in the midst of our despair. And so as we hear the preaching of the word, again, I think as, as Curtis is asking in the question, but reminding us to say, let's not simply hear this uh, maybe the way we have before as a way of simply learning things. Let's hear this in a way that we're engaging with God and God is communing with us and God is shaping us and God is acting upon us. And you notice as well, we always close every service with a, a word from God as well. We want God to have the first word and the last word because it's God's word that does the acting and God's word that brings God that communicates God's presence to us. So we close every service with a benediction, a promise of God, you know, or a praise to God for what he's done. So that's probably a long answer, but we should keep thinking about that. Well, I should let you go um, so that you can go grab a donut or whatever you need to do. But if there are other questions, uh, feel free to ask, and if there are any key ones, I'll try to address them in the coming days. But next week, let's think about how Jesus is the Word of God and how Scripture uh, conveys to us Jesus together. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your Word. What a gift. We don't want to take for granted that you spoke. We don't have to climb our way to you. You descended to us. You brought your word to us. You made yourself known to us. What a gift of grace. And you did not just give us information and then, and then go on your merry way. No, you came to act upon us by your word, to save us from our sins by your word, to rescue us from our slavery by your word of promise. And Lord, you are still acting upon us. You are still present with us by your word. You You love us through your word. You commune with us through your word. And I pray, Lord, as we we read the scriptures, that we would be changed by your action and we would be changed by your presence and that we would never read scripture the same way again. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.